When I was in seminary, I took a class on 1 Corinthians. It was called the exegesis of 1 Corinthians. We, we essentially read the, the letter line by line and then studied the historical background, all the references in each verse, all the possible connections each verse had to other sections of the Bible and other passages of the Bible. And um, at one point in the class, a student raised his hand, and we were discussing some passage, obviously, and, and the student raised his hand and said, Dr. Greer, does not that prove that Paul was a Lutheran? His thinking was that if Paul was a Lutheran, then the Lutheran church was the true church. Many of us laughed at that. My reaction was, are you nuts? Most of us laughed, but underneath our breath, we were thinking, ha, Paul was a Lutheran. We all know Paul was a Methodist. And we all know Paul was a Catholic. That thinking in, that we had in seminary was an outgrowth of all the courses we took on the Reformation and reading Luther and Calvin and, and the rest, you know, where they talked about this is the true church, this is not the true church. With the Reformation, before that, you know, people thought, well, the Catholic Church is the true church, it's the only church. But with the Reformation, there were discussions on what is the true church. And the debate revolved around issues of doctrine. You know, what is the true way of doing communion? What is the true belief on communion? What is the true belief on what happened on the cross and what is salvation? What is the true way to understand and read the Bible? What is the true way to organize a church and have administration in a church? We might think those days are over, but they're really not. Because we still debate. You know, what is the true way to understand and, and read the Bible? What is the true way to understand salvation? But it revolved around what one knew and what one believed. It was a head thing. And related to the true church is the true Christian. You know, if you're not in the true church, you couldn't possibly be a true Christian. Now, this true Christian argument issue runs through this passage in 1 Corinthians, and it kind of runs through the whole letter. It's the issue of knowledge. What you know determines the quality of your faith what you know determines how you behave. It determines the kind of your discipleship. And it also determines whether or not you have any. Now, Paul was frustrated by this 
reducing the faith to knowledge. For Paul, knowledge was good, but it was not the goal. Love was the goal. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Knowledge puffs me up, but love builds you up. Now we know, you know, Descartes' statement from the Enlightenment, I think, therefore I am. It's our thinking that gives us existence, makes us a human being. Paul would say, I love, therefore I am. It's my loving that gives me existence. It's my loving that gives me life. It's my loving that makes me human. Now, this is not anti-knowledge. Are you familiar with the archway to Faber College? Do you remember Faber College? Faber College is the college in Animal House. As you enter the gateway, the archway of the gateway of Faber College has on it, knowledge is good. Well, I believe knowledge is good. Love that is blind needs knowledge. Yeah, Kierkegaard says, Blind love is the kind of love that goes into a room full of dynamite and lights a match. It needs some knowledge. Knowledge enhances our lives. I look forward to making my reservation for my vaccination tomorrow. Thank God for that knowledge. Knowledge enhances love. We are better at loving our neighbor if we know what our neighbor really needs. Knowledge is in the service of love. Knowledge without love is destructive. We need to love our environment, not just have knowledge of it. We need to know how to love our neighbor rather than just enable them. Knowledge without love, Paul says, is arrogant. It puffs up. It's about me. It's prideful makes me a snob. It, it creates a hierarchy. I know more than you do. I know and you don't. It becomes exclusive and kind of an inner circle thing. And knowledge without love gives me power over the other person. And knowledge can also slide into this is the right way. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. 
problem in the Corinthian church was the know-it-alls, the sort of kind of kid who raises the hand for every question, corrects others, and shows a bit of disdain for those who don't know. You don't know? Paul writes to the Corinthians to bring them back to the main things. Come back to the gospel instead of this arrogance. Sacrifice instead of having this infighting of who's better and who knows more. Care for others. Paul says later in this chapter, remember for whom you exist. <laughs> we don't exist just for ourselves. We exist for God and neighbor. If you really know God, Paul says, you know that God wants you to be loving. If knowledge is our goal, we place um, Christianity and Christianity's existence is a head thing. You know, all I have to do is put Christianity in words. All I have to do is verbalize it and give that 15-second, 15-minute elevator talk. With knowledge as our goal, it's easy to think Everything is settled. Everything is final. Everything is a closed issue. God said it, I believe it. That's all there needs to be said. That settles it. I have the answers. There's no room for growth. There's no room to communicate anymore. There's no need to. There's no room to learn anything from my neighbor or from God. With all the questions, I don't have to ask any, with all the answers, I don't have to ask any questions. This is who Jesus is, end of discussion. This is what sin is, end of discussion. This is what salvation is, end of discussion. We've arrived. It's as if Christ came to save our heads. Discipleship is in what we know. And in a way, this knowledge can be an avoidance of loving. I don't have to love because I know. So when Paul writes, knowledge puffs up, he addresses not only the questions of a church about food offered and eaten to idols. But he's addressing the heart issue, as Gwen pointed out. Because of their arrogance, what they know has not yet shaped how they live. We're familiar with using our knowledge to stay in our heads. We know the truth of the gospel, we know the goodness of God and God's faithfulness. We know that we are saved by grace. But often, we live in ways that fail 
to reflect our knowledge of these essential facts. Now, knowledge can be achieved in two ways, and they're not mutually exclusive. Knowledge can be achieved as a result. I inherit the answer. I inherit the research. I inherit the solutions. Somebody works on an invention, I don't know, say the internal combustion engine. Well, they pass on that knowledge, and I don't have to go through that research. It's there. I have the answer to it. The other kind of knowledge is I do have to start from scratch. I do have to start from the beginning to know something in order to experience it. Faith is, is that. I have to start from the beginning. Each generation has to start from the beginning to experience the faith and to experience God. Richard Rohr says that God doesn't have grandchildren. And, and what he means by that is I can't take the knowledge that my father had as a Christian and let that be good for me. It's good that dad had that knowledge and it's good that dad taught me Christianity, but in order to know God, I can't have dad's faith as secondhand. I have to have and learn my own by living it. God only has children. Christianity is known as it is lived. Christianity is known as it is loved. God is known as God is loved. Paul writes in this passage, anyone who claims to know something doesn't yet have the necessary knowledge. It's kind of like saying he doesn't know what he doesn't know. Anyone who claims to know something doesn't have the necessary knowledge. I might claim to know something in my head, but I don't have the necessary knowledge in my heart. And I only learn that by living my faith and loving. Paul says anyone who loves God is known by God. And in my loving, in my struggle to love, in the taking of risks, I learn that God does love me, and God does know me, and God does care. How different Christianity is if instead of talking about the true church, we would talk about the loving church. How different Christian history would be if churches competed not in terms of knowledge, but in terms of love. How different history would be if churches were concerned about loving as the priority. We live in a society where knowledge, we're obsessed with knowledge, 
We're obsessed with false knowledge and true knowledge and sources of knowledge. We're obsessed with knowing and conspiracies. And it is absolutely important to know what the truth is. But just for a little bit, I'd like for us to turn down the volume on knowledge and talk about what is the loving action? What is the loving thing to do? Is this person a loving Republican? Is this person a loving Democrat? Is this person a loving American, a loving patriot? When I started in my first appointment out of seminary, it happened more than once that a, a church member would come up to me and say, um, you know, I work with so-and-so who goes to such-and-such -such a church, and they would name a church of a non-Methodist denomination, and they would say, you know, they can tell me everything they believe. And, you know, I don't know what to say to them. And the youth in the church, the youth group, would say, you know, so-and-so on my basketball team can tell me everything he believes, but I don't know what I believe. And I used to struggle with, okay, what is that 15-minute elevator talk that you give? And I thought, you know... It isn't that Methodists don't know anything. It isn't that we don't know what we believe. It just doesn't sound highfalutin. What we know is that God loves us. What we know is that we are to love God and love our neighbor. That's what a Methodist knows, that we are to be loving. We are to take risks. We are to be courageous on behalf of our neighbor. We are to build our neighbor up. Paul continues to wrestle with this passage, this issue in the church of, you know, how do we live as Christians? How do we live with knowledge? How do we treat our neighbor? He continues to wrestle with it through chapter 6, through chapter 7, through chapter 8, through chapter 9. And it's like he keeps circling and circling and circling, and he finally reaches a conclusion. And he finally sums it up. And we know what his beautiful summary is. We might not be clear on chapter 7, we might not be clear on chapter 8, but we're clear on chapter 13. If I speak in the tongues of mortals and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I'm nothing. If I give away all my possessions, if I hand over my body so that it might be burned, 
but do not have love, I am nothing. Love is patient, love is kind, love is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It is not, does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will come to an end. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will come to an end. For we know only in part, and we prophesy only in part. But when the complete comes, the partial will come to an end. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became an adult, I put an end to childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we shall see face to face. Now I know only in part, then I will know fully, even as I am fully known. Now faith, hope, and love abide. These three. But the greatest of these is love. We love. Therefore, we are. May it be so. Amen.